For the first time in history, you are now more powerful than governments, you are more powerful than the military, you are more powerful than the media. You can put out a message, gain millions of followers in under 24 hours in 280 characters or less. If you wanted your own TV show, get on YouTube, you're doing it in 30 seconds. If you want your own radio show, start a podcast, probably take you half an hour, an hour. If you want your own newspaper, start a blog. So you are now the most powerful entity on the planet. What do a graffiti artist, an FBI negotiator, and an ad man have in common? That's the question I was asking myself when the idea for this podcast first came into being. I've spent the last nearly two decades of my life working in the field of influencers and thought leaders. Most of that time has been spent building brands around speakers, politicians, authors, and business people who from various stages and platforms have reached millions of people. So you would think that I had learned a thing or two about influence, yet I still have some fundamental questions. One of the largest is this. These powers that I have spent my career hunting, the ability to attract and captivate human attention, about being able to incite action, about standing out in a room or an industry, driving a change, a movement, a conversation or a nation, do they only belong to a select few or can they be broken down and taught? And if they can, and we understood the mechanics of influence, would we make different choices about standing up and owning our own voice? On a personal note, would I make different choices around who and, and what I allow to influence me? That last question has been niggling at me for a while because for the first time in history, or at least in my career, all the rules around influence seem to be being broken. The stage is no longer the place for a select few gurus, Ted is an amazing testament to that. We're now more interested and have the capacity to follow the journey of a flawed and passionate human being than a polished and flawless brand. Personal gravity and the ability to influence situations or people no longer has a direct correlation with volume and traditional authority. And everyone, and I mean everyone, suddenly has access to a platform from which to be heard. So that leads me on to my final question. One of the most common perceptions about influence, what if it isn't true? That the loudest and most extroverted aren't those that create the largest amount of impact in the long run. That when all the smoke and the noise clears, there's a smarter form of influence out there. One that has more to do with clarity and courage than it does to charisma. So that's a lot of what ifs, I know. So back to my original question. What do a graffiti artist, an FBI negotiator, and an ad man have in common? The answer, I believe, is that they all hold a piece of the puzzle. They've all learned how to cut through the noise. Not only out there in regards to successfully and publicly driving a conversation, but also inside their own heads. They've somehow figured out how to put themselves, their fears, and insecurities to one side in order to show up and make an impact. Talking about showing up, um, those that know me know that I talk a lot about two things. The first is a commitment to being world-class, and the second is choosing passion over perfect. So first up, you'll be hearing a lot of international perspectives on this topic. That was really important to me, because I believe a global conversation on this topic is ultimately where it needs to go, or where I would like to see it go. 
I also wanted to share the, the largest diversity and depth of opinions possible. And I've been very fortunate to have a global career and different people that I can access. Secondly, just as a disclaimer, I think we pretty much had an epic tech fail on each of the first 10 episodes. So I now own more tech, more backup tech, more just-in-case tech than I possibly know what to do with. Some flaws we've hidden well due to the power of ninja editing. Others we just had to roll with or, or lose the magic of the interview. In other words, we're learning and I promise we'll get better as we go, but I've decided to walk my talk and put my very stern inner perfectionist aside and allow it to be a genuine reflection of getting something of worth out there, i.e. messy. When I first started out as an agent in the speaking world, I started with one quote on my desk. And it said, the right message at the right time, when delivered authentically, has the power to change everything. I still genuinely believe that. And so although I'm excited to share some of the insights and the people from my world, more than that, I hope that whatever tools you find here, you find at the right time and that you use them to take whatever feels like the next fierce step for you in your own journey of influence. What does it take to stand out? What does it take to be the voice of authority, the trusted expert? What does it take to be the influencer today, given everything that we're dealing with? Now, that question has kept me very busy over the span of my career. 15 years ago, I arrived in Australia. I arrived with a giant backpack, a variety of very unsuitable clothes for 40 degree weather, five woolly hats, don't know why. And when I got here, nobody was talking about influencers. Nobody was using the word thought leader or expert, and now those words are everywhere. I don't know if you've noticed. Now, in that time, in that 15 years, I've had a lot of time to think about this question. And I started a company, a, a management agency for thought leaders, where we represented, developed, and promoted authors, speakers, thought leaders, celebrities, many of whom I know from having spoken to a few of you, you've actually seen on these stages, both during this conference and in previous years. And in all that time, I had to get really clear on what makes an influencer. I had to get really solid on it. I had to break it down, decode it, so that we could replicate it over and over and over again. So what does that tell you? Well, it tells me that there are a few things that influence is not. A few things that it's not. Firstly, it is not dollars in the bank. It is not the size of your marketing budget. It is not how much money you have behind you that makes somebody an influencer. It is also not years in the game. How long you've been doing this? Your tenure. And finally, it is not force or aggression or being an extrovert. Because I can tell you firsthand, most of those people that you recognized, they're, in, they're introverts. So if it's not any of those things, what is it? What are those people that you recognize have in common? I want to put it to you that all of those people, all of those people had taken advantage of what is a new age of influence. And we are at the very beginnings of this new age, like literally right at the beginning. And in this age, human beings are able to connect, engage, 
and mobilize en masse in terrifyingly short periods of time. And so what's changed? What's changed? Digital. Digital has changed the game. Now, if you're anything like me, you're probably so tired of hearing that. Digital has changed the game. But in this instance, it really has. In my world, in a world of influence, it has flipped the entire thing on its head. And in order to tell you why, I'm going to take you on a very brief history lesson. So prior to, prior to the internet, influence looked a little bit like this. The top, we had the powers that be, the monarchy, the government. Underneath it, we had military, keep everybody in order. Underneath that, we had the media, a way of disseminating the information that the powers that be thought was important. And underneath that, the rest of us, the general public, you and me. Then the internet came along, and over the past five years, something fascinating has happened. It's done this. For the first time in history, in the history of mankind, you are now more powerful than governments, you are more powerful than the military, you are more powerful than the media. You can put out a message, gain millions of followers in under 24 hours in 280 characters or less. If you wanted your own TV show, get on YouTube, you're doing it in 30 seconds. If you want your own radio show, start a podcast, probably take you half an hour, an hour. You want your own newspaper, start a blog. You saw how many blogs were posted just today. So you are now the most powerful entity on the planet. And for me, that makes it one of the most exciting times to be alive and most certainly in business today. So who knows who he is? Who here is just not prepared to admit that they know who he is? <laughs> most of you. OK, fair, fair enough. That is the Biebs, Justin Bieber. Now, Justin Bieber, on one platform, one social media platform, bear in mind there are now over 52, but just on one, Twitter, he has 102 million followers on Twitter every day, reading pretty much everything that he has to say. Barack Obama has 90 million followers. Donald Trump, 30 million followers. A small amount of pleasure in saying that. But here's what's interesting, here's what's interesting. CNN, CNN, 50 million followers. So if he wanted to, on his yacht, at 2 a.m., sipping Bollinger, lying back, if he wanted to get an idea or a message out there, if he wanted to start a movement or if he wanted to sell a product, he could get it out there faster and with more engagement than CNN. And again, that's the first time in history that that's happened. Now, not many of you probably want to be a teenage pop sensation. And if you do, all power to you. Come and speak to me afterwards. We'll put together a game plan for you. But for those that don't, here's a more interesting statistic. 96%. 96% of all the content that you look at online, all the information that you absorb online, is unbranded. Now, what do I mean by unbranded? I mean it comes from humans, not brands, humans. Now, we spend about two hours a day consuming content and information, our news, everything online. Two hours a day. I don't know when we're working, but apparently we, we squeeze work in between the cracks. 
two hours a day, and only 4% of that time we spend online has anything to do with the brand. Are we listening to or paying any attention to brands? Now, that's huge when you think that as an industry, as a global industry, we spend $50 billion a year on marketing and advertising and branding. $50 billion. And no one, no one is paying any attention. It's like building the world's sexiest billboard and then putting it under the ocean. No one is looking. What we are looking at and what we are following is humans. Digital has enabled us to follow our most basic instinct, and that is to connect with, follow humans. People follow people, we don't follow brands. And that's a, a brand new shift that we're going to need to get used to in a new world of influence. So, we did figure it out, we did break it down. And here are the things that we broke it down into. So, number one, clarity. You cannot own a space unless you are clear on what space you want to own. Cannot own a space unless you know what space it is that you want to own. Back when I first started out, you could own a massive space, what we would call at that point a macro space. Again, fancy way of just saying a large space, like leadership or real estate or finance, money, health. There was very few gurus, very few people got on the stage. Now everybody's got a stage, everybody's got a platform. There is way too much noise to own a macro space anymore. Now the future belongs to micro influencers, micro authorities, people who hyper, hyper specialize. Hyper, hyper specialize. I need to be able to find you fast. I need to be able to know what you do immediately, know what space you own immediately. So according to Harvard University, 50% of decisions now are made by Google, what I would call, they have a fancier word for it, but I would call Google stalking. By Google stalking other people. When you have somebody that you're interested in, a prospect, um, a potential consultant, they, I promise you, are Google stalking you. And if what they find isn't spot on, is, is not speaking exactly to them, and they can't find it fast, then you've lost that race. So pay attention to Google stalking. I'm, all I'm talking about here is owning your space. You have to own your space. And so I want to introduce you to um, a concept that I came up with a few years ago, which I think is really helpful when it comes to figuring out what space you want to own. And that concept is this. It's called influence intersections. How do you find the niche that you want to own? How do you find that hyper-specialization that will set you apart from everybody else? And it looks like this. You take a world in which you have mastery, insights, or experience, and then you overlay it with another world where you have mastery, insights, or experience. And that space, that space in the middle, that is a space that only you can own. So I'm going to give you, I'll give you an example. Let's take Jamie Oliver from before. Jamie Oliver, I remember when he first started out, there were so many celebrity chefs. They were all very serious. They were very French. They came from six-star you know, hotels and restaurants. And he came along. Now, what did he have? He had mastery experience and insights into, into the high-end world of cooking. He'd worked in all these six-star restaurants. But what else did he have? He had personality, exactly. But the personality he brought to the front was he understood families. He understood what it's like to try and cook for your children on a budget quickly in somewhat of a healthy way. 
took those two spaces and that place in the middle, that was a place where only he could own, that was a place where he stood out. We'll take Steve Jobs, when he first started out, they were the IBMs, they were the Microsofts, he was never gonna stand out in the world of engineering as good as an engineer as he was. And so he took that world that he understood, the world of engineering computers, and he overlaid it with another world that he knew, which was the world of the creative, the world of the innovator. And that space in the middle, that was a space that only he could own. Let's talk about contribution for a second. I want you to write this down. The future belongs to those who out-contribute and not those who outspend their competitors. Future belongs to those who out-contribute and not those who outspend their competitors. And that has been the traditional method of marketing, right? When I went to uni, I studied marketing, and that was all we talked about. How do you outspend, outshout, or outinterrupt everybody else? You can't do that now. All the best channels are for free. All the most highly leveraged platforms are for free. And who here loves being interrupted, just by the way? Who, like, who loves those pop-ups? Who loves telemarketers? Who loves ads? Actually, I'll tell you a funny story, true story. My mum, a couple of weeks ago, honestly, she called me and she said, she was like, hey, love. That's my mum. Hey, love. She's like, hey, love, oh my goodness, I figured it out. So what I do is, when the ads come on, I pause it, and then I go and make a cup of tea, and then I come back, and then I fast forward them. It's awesome. And I'm like, oh my goodness, if my mum has figured this out, like, traditional advertising is dead if she hasn't even got an email account. So you, we cannot outspend, and we cannot outshout, and we cannot outinterrupt anymore. That method just does not work. I'll tell you um, a qu another quick story. When my business partner and I decided that we were going to expand our business into the USA, we didn't know anybody and we had no money. This was back in the days. And not only that, but the people we were going up against, they were people who had lunch with the Clintons. They had millions of dollars in the bank, and we just, we, we had no idea how we were going to compete there. But we were naive and a bit ballsy. We thought, we'll just give it a go. And so what we did is we went out there to our target market and we asked them one question, and that question was this. What is your largest professional challenge in relation to the, the world that we work in? And quite a few answers came back. And then what we did is we went out to our network, people that we knew, and we said, you're pretty experienced in this. Can you make a video or write an article just answering this question or addressing this challenge? And we did, they did. And then we put together a 12-week program where we just went out to our target market going, hey, thanks for answering the question. We've done our best that we can to address them. Here is some information that I think you might, you might find helpful. 12 weeks. As a result of that campaign where we, bit, we spent basically nothing. We went into the USA, we went on to become the largest dedicated talent management company in the world after that, spending pretty much nothing due to one commitment that we would out-contribute everybody else in that space, out-contributing. I want you to imagine in your heads, just close your eyes, just picture every single network that you're a part of. Every single social network, your, everybody on your phone, everybody on your database, just all your contacts. I want you to imagine them in a great big bowl. And I just want you to think about a number. Is there a particular number that you think that if you added them all, it doesn't have to be exact, you think you added them all up, it would come to? You all got it, roughly? All right, now raise your hand if it's 100 or above. 
pretty well connected room. Raise your, keep your hand raised, sorry, keep them raised, keep them raised. Raise your hand, keep them raised if 500 or above. Yep, keep them raised if 1,000 or above. Oh, you guys are good. Okay, keep them raised if it's 5,000 or above. There's still someone there. Okay, well, most well-connected man in the room, just in case any of you were wondering. Over there, round of applause. <laughs> but here's the killer question, here's the crux. When was the last time you contributed to any of them? And by contribution, I don't mean like something that they did or posted a picture of, of your birthday. I mean contributed your knowledge, experience, and insights to any of them. Like, you don't have to answer that question out loud. But I think that for the majority of people, it's rarely. So we need to engage rather than collect. And I think we've got a bit of a collection addiction going on at the moment. You know, like, remember you used to collect business cards? Oh, sorry, business, um, baseball cards? Remember you used to collect baseball cards? And you'd be like, I got that one, I want that one, I need that one. And then you'd put them in your pocket and you'd be very smug because you got the whole set. Was that just me? It's possibly just me. I think we do that with business now. I think especially as salespeople, we can sit down in front of LinkedIn and you sit down and you're like, oh, I'll have that one. Oh, I like that one. Oh, I collect that one. And we collect this huge network of people. And yet we have very little influence and we have very little engagement with those people. So if we're not collecting, we're engaging, how do we do that? And the answer is you become the translator the primary translator of your space. We don't need more information. We have more than enough information to go around. You can literally figure out how to make, terrifyingly, a hydrogen bomb on YouTube. There is no shortage of information. What we need from you and what your customers need from you is to not be the technician, but to be the translator. What we need from you is to go out onto the fringes, to all the places that we don't have the time or the bandwidth or the experience to go and bring it back for us and translate it into our language in a way that's easily digestible. Those are the people that we follow. And if you look at anybody that you follow, I would put money on the fact it's because they trans something, translate something important for you. In the future, we will do business with and we will follow and be influenced by the translators, not the technicians. Next one, captivation. So if our minds and our eyes belong to the translators, if they're the ones that get our attention, then our hearts belong to the epic storytellers. They are the ones that will keep our attention. And if you want to stand out in a new age of influence, you are going to need to learn the art of epic storytelling. And why is that? Why is that, other than you know, the fact that we all know that most of the things that caught your attention when you were scrolling this morning would have been epic stories? It is because we are storytelling creatures. We are hardwired for story. Since caveman time, story is how we connect. Story is how we learn to trust. Story is how we learn things. We are hardwired to notice, identify, and engage with story above all else. And not only that, but story is the only road to empathy. I can't feel empathy for you unless you tell me your story, I imagine myself in your shoes, and I have an experience of what that must feel like. Story is the only road to empathy and emotion, and emotion 
is the only road to action. We usually only take action when propelled by emotion or empathy, majority of the time. So if we want people to take action, we're going to need to learn how to tell epic stories. I'm going to give you another quick example. Who's, who's seen this, An Inconvenient Truth? Has anyone seen it? It's getting a bit old now. Yep, I still love it. So An Inconvenient Truth, for those of you who haven't seen it, Al Gore, um, previous presidential candidate in the USA, huge um, climate change advocate and campaigner, he made this video. It was an hour-long presentation. It was, it was one-hour story where he talked about the impact of climate change on the world. Now, bear in mind, before he released this, the scientific community had, for years, for a decade, been trying to get our attention on this, had been using statistics, case studies, pie charts, graphs, to try and get us to stand up and take notice about what was happening on the planet. And nothing changed. Al Gore tells one compelling story, one hour, one compelling story, and it goes viral, absolutely viral. Because he was able to talk to our emotions. He was able to talk to us about what our homes were going to look like 10 years from now, what our children's futures were going to be like, the animals that we love and enjoy, what's going to happen to them. He was able to tell a story in a way where it became our story. We had empathy and emotion attached to it. And because of that, we took action. 50% of anybody that watched this made a carbon offset contribution. So that's just to say that 50% of the people that watched this paid money to offset their negative impact on the planet. 50% took financial action due to one compelling story that the scientific community had not been able to crack. So what makes a compelling story? What makes an epic, epic story? It's this, it's three things. In my experience, working with a lot of compelling storytellers, people who speak in rooms of thousands of people, it just boils down to three things. The first thing is, is it personal? Do I believe you? Do I believe you? Have you walked this road before? Or if you haven't, have you held the hand of somebody else who has walked this road before? Is it personal? Because we connect with personal stories. We connect with real stories. Second one, is it relevant? And we get caught on this one a lot. Is it relevant to my world? I lose track of the amount of newsletters and pieces of content that I receive that are, you know, real estate agents are the worst. Look, I just sold a house. Ah, I sold another house. Another house. Or newsletters that say, guess what? It's our 10-year anniversary. And you're thinking, ah, that's nice. I'm not going to share it with anybody I know, but it's nice. Is it relevant to me? Is it a situation that I can see myself facing? Can I see myself in that situation? Is it relevant? And the last one, the important one, is emotive. Is it emotive? Are you using emotional language? Or are you using statistics, jargon, all the things, all the words that we tend to use to hide behind when we're a little bit nervous? Is it emotive? I got it's a wonderful example of emotive language the other day. I was watching David Attenborough, who I love. And I'm watching him, and it was a documentary about um, Under the Sea. And he was saying that the, the, he was in this little submarine thing, and he was 100 kilometers under the ocean. <laughs> Is that possible? You're laughing. Doesn't sound like it's possible. <laughs> Just ignore. I said no statistics. Ignore the statistics. And so he's, he's talking about the cubic metric 
tons of pressure, is that right? Cubic metric tons of pressure that are, would be on his shoulders if he wasn't in that submarine. And he's throwing around numbers, and I'm just sat there very knowledgeably nodding, no idea what he's talking about. And then he said this. He said, it's a bit like if I were to hold a 10-ton truck on my finger. And I went, oh, 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 I get that. Like, I have a visceral experience of that. I have an emotional response to what that would be like. Heavy, <laughs> hard. So emotive language, not hiding behind jargon. Those are the three things that make a compelling, compelling story. We don't care about perfect. In fact, as human beings, we tend to be off-put by perfect. You, you see someone who looks really perfect, and you think, yeah. It's just a bit scary. And that's one of the reasons that we don't follow brands anymore. Brands are polished, they're perfect. By their nature, that's what they are. That's why reality TV has gone through the roof. We're not interested in your perfect. We are interested in your process. We are interested in your journey. So if what is stopping you is that you are not perfect, in the eternal words of Brene Brown, when she said, oh, you know, I'll do that when I'm wiser, skinnier, or more intelligent, just stop. Focus on your process, focus on being a translator, focus on telling epic stories, and focus on showing up. Because that's what we're interested in, is the people that do that, that we are compelled by. How do we step up and own our influence more as organizations and as individuals? 10 years ago, IBM had this exact issue. 10 years ago, they were in the middle of the largest recession that we have ever seen. Their employee engagement was on the floor. Their customers were looking for answers to some massive questions. And they were just stuck. And then they made a, a really unique decision. They decided to take out all these full-page adverts, put out all these videos, addressing some of the major questions that their customer base had with ideas about how technology could revolutionize this industry, how technology could revolutionize this problem, how technology could be applied to this system. It just went out there with ideas and used that as their marketing. It was called Smarter Planet, the campaign, and yet here's where it got even smarter. For those ads, they only used their employees. They went into their organization, they pulled out the ideas, they pulled out the stories, the expertise, the knowledge and the insights, and they shone a light on everybody that worked with them, master inventors down to systems engineers. Not only that, they went out to their customer base and started go going out to their customers and going, do you want to collaborate with us? Do you want to partner with us on how technology could revolutionize your industry? Do you want to become the thought leader in that space and do it with me? And the customers were like, yeah, you know, we're trying to figure this stuff out. Let's, let's do it together and then promote what we find. And guess what happened? The results were shared exponentially. Everybody, all the employees, all the customers, started sharing this campaign that they had been a part of, that they had contributed to, that they were passionate about. And as a direct result of all that sharing, all that amplification, all that collaboration, IBM themselves have indicated or said that $3 billion worth of revenue was raised just out of that one campaign. And that year, their share price rose by 64% in a market average in their space of 14%. That is the power of collaboration. 
That is the power of taking epic stories, shining a light on other people in your team, shining a light on the amazing things that are happening, and then empowering and enabling other people to share it. So that's what I want you to do. I want you to go out there and I want you to tell epic stories. I want you to find other people to collaborate with. I want you to get involved with what Aeon are doing. Give it your own flavor, translate it, and then share it within your networks. You are the most powerful asset that Aeon has. You are the influencer, set of influencers. So that is your task. Finally, we have consistency. Now, you guys have had an epic year, so I have been told. And so I don't need to tell you to step up, raise the game. I don't want to tell you to do any of that. You're already killing it. What I want to tell you to do is show up in areas where you are not currently showing up. Stand up, own your space, own your voice. Even if your knees are trembling and your voice is breaking and you feel like you're not enough and you feel like you don't know enough, I want you to keep showing up and claiming your influence. 